Coming from the McDowell Heating and Air Studio, welcome to the True Crime Mamas podcast. We are a not-for-profit organization dedicated to shedding light on the many tragic homicide and missing person cases across North Carolina. We strive to honor victims and their loved ones by honestly and non-sensationally sharing their stories. Hey, True Crime Mamas, when is the last time you had professional photos made of your children? Kids grow up so quickly, and we know a photographer who will help make your memories last. Megan at M. Jueli Photography offers standard mini sessions. This summer, she's featuring watermelon and sunflower mini sessions. This way, you can get adorable pictures without a huge investment of money or time. Check out M. Jueli Photography. That's M-G-I-O-E-L-I Photography on Facebook or Instagram or at mgwellyphotography.com. Hey, True Crime Mamas and friends, this is Christina, and today we have a little mini-sode for you guys. We've been working super hard to bring you some great, but they're very intense cases, and some of them are taking a lot longer than we anticipated um, because we're sorting through just a ton of information. We're excited about sharing them with you, but because we don't want to leave you hanging, we thought it would be fun if we each took a turn giving you a mini-sode. So some of these cases may not necessarily be in North Carolina, but they're cases that are intriguing to us or close to home for us. And today, I'm going to tell you the story of how I got interested in true crime. So I grew up as a child of a military man, and my dad's career took us all over the United States. In 1989, my dad was giving orders to move us from Minot, North Dakota, to Bossier City, Louisiana. We loved Minot, and the thought of having to be the new girl midway through junior high was horrifying. Not only was I going to be the new girl, but I also came from an extremely sheltered home. My exposure to how the world worked was always behind church doors. Moving to Louisiana was akin to moving to a new country. Everything was different, and as a junior high student, being different was exactly the opposite of what I wanted. My first day of school helped me understand I was a fashion disaster. Minot, North Dakota is probably the last place in the U.S. which fashion trickles to. I came home to report to my mom that we needed to go shopping because I was severely out of style. I dressed nothing like these girls with their guest jeans and big bows. To make it worse, my accent sounded straight out of the movie Fargo, and that set me even further apart. And almost any time I opened my mouth to speak, I was called a green Yankee. And years later, I still don't know exactly what that meant, but I was determined that I was going to fake a Southern accent until I completely broke myself from my upper Midwestern accent. Junior high in Louisiana was rough, and thankfully the year passed quickly. Over the summer, I was able to cultivate great friendships, and I was looking forward to a great time in high school. When selecting electives, I randomly chose a drama class, and it ended up being a life-changing decision for many fa- fantastic reasons. The teacher of the class, Miss Edwards, was nothing like any teacher I had ever had. She was young, cool, relatable, and passionate about her work. Instead of treating us like kids, she treated us like people who had something valuable to offer the world. She cultivated in me a love for theater, stage makeup, stage lighting, and most importantly, not being afraid to have and own an opinion. I ended up taking every class she taught and eventually joined the drama club and acted on the small stage. 
One of the most eye-opening classes for me was speech. Growing up as an evangelical Christian, I was told what to believe and took most things I was told at face value. While I was a subject matter expert on Bible history, I was completely clueless about American history beyond the very basics. I kind of knew who John F. Kennedy was, but didn't know anything about his life and eventual assassination. That all changed with one assignment. The topic of the assignment was to take a position on something controversial and defend it. Miss Edwards, as she usually did, demonstrated the assignment. What came out of her mouth next completely opened up an entirely new world for me. Hey, True Crime Mamas, we are so excited to tell you about an amazing sponsor, Signs Point to Farmington. The creator, Megan, handcrafts simple and sweet homemade signs. If you want to treat yourself or give unique, personalized, one-of-a-kind gifts, check out Signs Point to Farmington on Facebook and Instagram. She told us the story of November 22, 1963, and the aftermath. She wove a tale of this dynamic man who defeated the odds to become the first Catholic president of the United States. Kennedy, or more commonly known as JFK or Jack, and his political advisors were on a nine-state tour. The trip was meant to put a spotlight on natural resources and conservation efforts. Kennedy's wife, Jackie, accompanied him to Texas, and this was her first extended trip since the death of their infant son, Patrick, that past August. While in Texas, Jack planned to unite the Democratic Party as winning Texas would be critical to his re-election. The morning of November 22nd started in Fort Worth. Kennedy received a warm welcome from several thousand and addressed them on a stage in his hotel parking lot. Although it was lightly raining, he stood on the stage with no protection from the weather. Back inside the hotel, he addressed the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce and then left the hotel by motorcade to Carswell Air Force Base. From there, they would board the 13-minute flight to Love Field in Dallas. The Kennedys disembarked the plane in Dallas and joined Governor John Connolly and his wife Nellie in an open-top convertible. The motorcade then began the 10-mile route to the Dallas Trademark. Even today, a visiting president is a huge deal, and Dallas showed up to welcome their president. Crowds of people lined the roads along the way, and they were waving, cheering, and taking pictures of the handsome couple. Around 12.30 p.m., the motorcade turned off Main Street at Dealey Plaza. As the motorcade passed by the Texas School Book Depository, the noise of the crowd was drowned out by gunfire. Both President Kennedy and Governor Connolly were shot. Kennedy was shot twice, once in the neck and once in the head, and Connolly was shot in his back. While Connolly would later recover, the official story was that Kennedy was fatally shot in the neck. Even though the motorcade sped to Parkland Memorial Hospital in minutes, last rites were given by a Catholic priest and John F. Kennedy was pronounced dead at 1 p.m. The president's body was then whisked away back to left field and placed on Air Force One. Right before takeoff, Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson took the oath of office. 
About an hour after the assassination, police apprehended recently hired Texas School Book Depository employee Lee Harvey Oswald. He was arrested for the assassination of the president, as well as patrolman J.D. Tippett, who he shot shortly after. Two days later, on Sunday, November 24th, Lee Harvey Oswald was being transferred from the Dallas Police Headquarters to the county jail. A local nightclub owner named Jack Ruby took out his pistol and shot Lee Harvey Oswald. He died two hours later at Parkland Memorial Hospital, the same place in which President Kennedy had died a few hours before. Ms. Edwards then told us that the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the aftermath was filled with conspiracy theories. She then dropped a bombshell. She said that Jack survived the assassination attempt. Because of his grave injuries, it was apparent that he may never be capable of leading the United States. Just a few weeks before, the president of South Vietnam was ousted in a coup and eventually murdered. This was the beginning of American involvement in Vietnam. Also, the Cold War resulted in a struggle between the U.S. and Russia. They were constantly competing for power in the world. And on U.S. soil, the civil rights movement was at its height. The U.S. couldn't afford to have the leader of its country to be seen as weak, so the decision to fake Kennedy's death and to inaugurate Johnson was made. Jackie Kennedy agreed to this plan out of fear for herself and her family. If anyone made an assassination attempt again, there could be even more loss for her family who had already seen so much tragedy. Jackie went back to Washington, D.C. to start preparing her children for life outside the White House. Jack was then sent to a private off-grid hospital to convalesce. Jackie took on the role of a grieving widow. In 1968, the Kennedy children were receiving death threats more than likely due to being forced back in the spotlight. Their uncle Bobby was campaigning for president. On June 5th, 1968, Bobby was shot by Saran Saran and died 26 hours later. Jackie was absolutely terrified and needed to hunker down. She was quoted as saying, they're killing Kennedys and my children are Kennedys. Only four months later, Jackie married Aristotle Onassis. Onassis was a wealthy shipping millionaire, 23 years Jackie senior. His wealth afforded the best of protection, not only for her and her children, but also Jack. Onassis was the owner of the great private island Scorpios. Shortly after the marriage, Jack and his care team were relocated there where he was guaranteed privacy and protection. Jackie was able to lead a fiercely private life due to the unlimited resources available to her. During the school term, she lived in Manhattan with her children, and in the summers, they would relocate to Scorpios to be with Jack. The marriage offered safety and protection from the political limelight of the remaining Kennedys. The marriage was distant and brief. Onassis died six and a half years later. His daughter Christina reportedly settled with $25 million in exchange for Jackie not contesting Onassis's will. That type of money would be enough to provide for her and Jack's every need. The tale of the Kennedy family was enchanting to me. I had no idea that there were conspiracy theories around the death of John F. Kennedy. Luckily, I lived a block away from the public library, and I got to work reading every single book available in the Bossier Parish Library system. This was way before the internet was available to the general public, so I soaked up every word. I was determined to figure out what exactly happened on that November day in 1963. 
This started me on a rabbit hole of investigations. The theories on the death of JFK led me to the death of Marilyn Monroe. Then the deaths of other celebrities, which led me to the Manson family. From there, it was a spiral into anything true crime. The less answers, the more I want to dig. When Google was born, I logged hours in pure amazement that anything I wanted to know was available at my fingertips. So that's my story of how I got into true crime. But while I'm here, I thought I would share my favorite theory on the assassination and aftermath of the death of Jack Kennedy. Unfortunately, Jack was assassinated, and he didn't survive. However, Lee Harvey Oswald was acting on behalf of the CIA. And this theory is entirely plausible, and supposedly the CIA had plenty of motive. Jack at the time was frustrated with the shenanigans of the CIA. He had recently found out that they were behind an effort to kill Cuban leader Fidel Castro, and he was furious. The CIA strongly believed that Jack would disband them and therefore ordered the killing of Jack. What's even more interesting is Lyndon B. Johnson formed the Warren Commission, who was tasked with the official investigation of the assassination. The former head of the CIA, Alan Dulles, was a member of the commission, and the commission determined that Oswald acted alone. I remember Ms. Edwards told us that in the year 2017, which seems so far away at the time, that all federal agencies would have to transfer any records they had pertaining to the investigation into the assassination of John F. Kennedy to the National Archives. This was a result of a 1992 congressional law entitled the JFK Assassination Records Collection Act. It stipulated that all records that had been withheld, either partially or in full, would be released to the public 25 years later. On October 26, 2017, 2,800 documents were released. At the last minute, the government withheld 300 documents. We did learn from the documents that the FBI sought information from a strippers union, The Soviets were worried it was a coup and the missile could be fired at them. And the Soviets also thought that Lee Harvey Oswald was a neurotic maniac who was disloyal to his own country and never belonged to any organization. Upon learning of JFK's death, the Cuban government was initially delighted, but was ordered to cease looking happy in public at consulates. As mentioned earlier, it was proven that the shenanigans of the CIA were true. They had even attempted to recruit the Chicago mob to kill Fidel Castro. Everything wasn't released by the deadline established by the 1992 Records Collection Act. Former President Trump cited national security concerns as the reason for not releasing some of the remaining classified documents. The president said he was ordering agencies to re-review each of the redactions over the next three years and set a deadline for further release of documents of October 26, 2021. So I guess until then, we're going to continue to wait and we'll see if the entire record will still be released. To close, I am grateful to Ms. Edwards, who taught me to consider more than the information at face value, to dig deep and to look from various perspectives. Thanks to the internet, we are now connected on Facebook. Ms. Edwards is still at the same high school I graduated from, now the department chair of theater and art. Her beautiful daughter, who was a toddler when I left, is now also a teacher with her classroom right across the hallway. I reached out to ask her if I could tell her conspiracy theory on the podcast and how she came up with it. I shared that my experience with her was the ignition to my journey toward the work we do on the podcast. And for that, I was very grateful. She replied, 
Wow, I did touch a life. This makes me smile big. Yes, I came up with this theory when I was in high school, just placing puzzle pieces together and creating a perfect picture. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks. True Crime Mamas podcast is a production of TCM Productions. Theme music created by the talented Sam Morrison with the Arkham Files podcast. Cover art created by design extraordinaire Marley Soden. Studio sponsored by McDowell Heating and Air. Keep your home comfortable all year with McDowell Heating and Air. True Crime Mamas podcast is property of True Crime Mamas Nonprofit Corporation. Support True Crime Mamas by following us on Instagram and Facebook and check out our website at truecrimemamaspodcast.com for sources and more.